Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning everyone, those who are on the um, west coast, east coast, central region of the United States, and all regions around the world. My name is uh, Kennard. I'm your host for the Merciful Service of God Biblical Instructional Program. Uh, Before we get into uh, what the uh, subject matter of this program is about, which is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, I want to talk about uh, some, uh, actually one event that has happened, has been going on really since the year 2001 with the unfortunate uh, Occurrence of uh, September 11th, 2011. No, not 2011, 2001. And there's there's a recent article uh, from the Telegraph, which is a British-based. Um, says the headline to the article. You can Google this on on the internet if you want. Says the world facing worst financial crisis in in history. Bank of England governor says. It says the world is facing the worst financial crisis since at least the 1930s, if not ever, the governor of the Bank of England said last night. It says Sir Mervyn King was speaking after the decision by the bank's monetary policy committee to put $75 billion of newly created money into the economy in a desperate effort to stave off a new credit crisis and a U.K. recession. Economists said the bank's decision to resume its quantitative easing, which is printing money out of thin air, uh, money that you don't have um, to back up of any silver or gold or any other commodities, uh, showed it was increasingly fearful for the economy and predicted more such moves ahead. Sir Mervyn said the bank had been driven by growing signs of a global economic disaster. This, and I quote, this is the most serious financial crisis we've seen at least since the 1930s. If not ever, we're having to deal with very unusual circumstances, but to act calmly to this and to do the right thing. Announcing its decision, the bank said the Eurozone debt crisis was creating severe strains in bank funding markets and financial markets. The Monetary Policy Committee, the NPC, also said that the inflation-driven squeeze on households' real incomes and the government's program of spending cuts will continue to weigh on domestic spending for some time to come. The deterioration in the outlook meant more QE or quantitative easing was justified, the bank said. Financial experts said the committee's actions would be a a titanic, a titanic, just like the movie Titanic, a titanic disaster for 
savers and workers approaching retirement. Sir Mervyn suggested that was a price worth paying to save the economy from recession. So anyway, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but uh, it's this is uh, serious, folks. Um, ever since uh, 2008, when the uh, Dow Jones Industrial had dropped considerably, uh, 777, which is uh, pretty interesting, uh, we've been in this uh, financial situation that the Bible has predicted. If we go, first of all, to Revelation, this is where we're at right now, whether you want to believe it or not, Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, beginning the, the fifth verse, I'm reading this in the English Standard Version of the Bible. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. So uh, economics is, is uh, the center of this prophecy here. A pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, the commentary here in the English Standard Version of the Bible, and I'm going to read you another commentary so you understand what is, what, what's really going on here. It says, The rider on the black horse carries scales for measuring grains and their prices. A heavenly voice comments on the scale significant, citing inflated grain prices, eight to ten times normal. Siege and disruption of commercial routes will produce scarcity, driving prices up. Local crops such as oil and wine are unaffected, however, showing that the scarcity is limited, not comprehensive. Some think the command not to harm the oil and wine may have a social significance since the ritual of the primary consumers of oil and wine could also be a prediction of events like that of A.D. 92 when the Emperor Dominion, during a grain shortage, ordered the vineyards cut down to make room for more wheat fields. This caused such a backlash that he rescinded the order. In other words, extreme measures would have to be taken due to the progressive pouring out of judgment. And that kind of sounds similar to what's going on right now. The whole world is, is doing this quantitative easing, at least the countries that can afford to do it, printing currency out of thin air, um, and are just doing it because they have the power to do it, but they don't have the the commodities, in particular the silver and gold, to back up uh, what they're doing. That's what we're doing in the United States. I think I uh, read an article about two or three or four weeks ago, I can't remember when, it stated that our true debt is $200 trillion, not $14 trillion. When you uh, add the entitlement programs, what I mean by entitlement programs, Social Security, uh, financial aid, and so forth, uh, what you're entitled to, uh, what uh, you are due, that's what entitlement means. And we have several programs that uh, help Americans. And you have these rich folks, a lot of them stating, well, we don't need entitlement programs. Okay, well, if you cut them out, are you rich folks going to help the people that are the recipients of these programs? I, I kind of wonder sometimes. You know, I agree. Cut the entitlement programs out. If, and only if, we as a nation help one another. But I, I don't see that happening in this country. The government, I agree, the government shouldn't have to step in and help people. People should help one another out. But let's be realistic. You think people's mental state right now the majority are in a mental state where they're going to really care about people and 
share their possessions and so forth. Come on, everybody's going to do uh, dance around in a circle. Hey, let's help each other. No, I, I, I just don't. I only see that happening when there's a Katrina or when there's a catastrophe. Then people wake up and say, yes, I must learn how to love my neighbor because my life is at stake, you know. But but uh, other other than things like that happening, people just continue on, continue on, and, well, everything's okay with me. I really don't care about the world. You know, people have that type of attitude. And then if something happens, well, you know, yeah, I, I understand now, you know. Anyway, in uh, the Jewish New Testament commentary by David H. Stern, which I highly recommend if you really want to understand the Bible uh, deeply, I suggest you get this book. You can go to Amazon.com, or uh, you could um, go to any bookstore and get this book. But the simplest way, of course, is to get it on uh, Amazon. Anyway. Revelation chapter 6, verse 6. This is his Hebraic. This guy's a Jew. And the Jews do have an advantage. Uh, they do understand the Bible in a unique way, especially Messianic Jews, so those Jews who believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. Revelation chapter 6, verse 6 says, The rich are cushioned by their wealth from the effects of economic inequality and scarcity. But the poor, who must pay a day's wage, is literally a denarius. For starvation rations are brusquely ordered not to meddle with or damage the olive oil and the wine. Now luxuries far beyond their means. And he states here, weighing the bread is a sign of a curse. According to Leviticus 26, verse 26, they shall dole out your bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. That's inflation, folks, and that's what's going on uh, right now uh, in the world. Uh, it's only going to get worse as... This country in particular is printing money out of thin air. And over here uh, in his description on page 808, uh, the first eight verses of chapter 6, he states here, The breaking of the first four seals releases the four horsemen of the apocalypse, who represent respectively, number one, war, in its aspect of subjecting peoples to one another. Uh, number two, war in its aspect of hate between nations and individuals. I would add also that first seal is is referring to religious deception as well. Verse three, inequitable economic distribution, or less likely, general scarcity of foods, and that's what uh, I wanted to focus on there. Uh, inequitable distribution, which causes inflation, and that's that's what's going on as I'm speaking worldwide. So, I just wanted to read that headline to you, and uh, we're going to focus on what this uh, Bible study is about, uh, Yom Kippur, which is a very important day uh, for Jews around the world. They're celebrating it by uh, not eating or drinking. That's what fasting is. And this day is, is a very unique day because it pictures the Messiah sacrificing his life not just the Jews, but for all of mankind. And through his blood, the death penalty that we all deserve, because Adam and Eve earned it for us, has been eliminated. However, that does not mean that we continue to go on sinning, as I'm going to show you in the scriptures. Uh, unfortunately, well, the Jews don't believe that the Messiah should not have died 
and the scriptures indicate that that's not the case. And then so-called Christians, um, they believe that, well, there's no works involved. Uh, we don't have to do anything now because Yeshua or Jesus did everything for us. So I'm going to prove today that both those cases are wrong and that the, the Messiah is Yeshua. I'm planning to, God willing, write an article to, to once and for all, in a simple way, prove that he is the Messiah. So be praying I'll be able to get that done. But in the meantime, let's settle for this short Bible study on Yom Kippur, which has everything to do uh, with uh, Jesus Christ, or Yeshua Messiah. All right, Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, and I'm going to read this in the Jewish Study Bible. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they drew too close to the presence of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come at will into the shrine behind the curtain. And this is talking about the Holy of Holies in the temple, if you understand the temple structure. And by the way, if you want free teaching, and I mean free, F-R-E-E, free teaching on the temple, just go to the templeinstitute.org, templeinstitute.org, put it in Google to find a URL. Or you can just type the URL, www.templeinstitute.org, and find out all you need about the temple. It's a part of your worship to God, to Yahweh to Yehovah, or whatever else his name is pronounced. And and uh, really, when you're spare time, when you have nothing to do, when you're twiddling your thumbs, go to templeinstitute.org. Believe me, I guarantee you, you'll be really intrigued, and you'll be interested in understanding where our true father lives and how he lives. Okay, so into the shrine behind the curtain in front of the cover that is upon the ark, Okay, so in the Holy of Holies, you have the uh, mercy seat. That's what it's talking about here, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And in front of the cover that is upon the Ark, which has the mercy seat, rather, that he died, for I appear in the cloud over the cover. All right, so it says right here in... Uh, Verse 2, it says, at will at any time. Only once a year may Aaron or his successor enter the inner sanctum. The shrine behind the curtain in front of the cover that is upon the ark, the inner sanctum known as the Holy of Holies, and here called Hakodesh, the holy place, that he died for I appear in the cloud over the cover. How Aaron is to avoid death when purging the inner sanctum is explained. Okay, so, in verse 3, thus only Aaron shall enter the shrine with a bull of the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall be dressed in a sacral linen tunic with linen breeches next to his flesh and be girt with a linen sash, and he shall wear a linen turban. They are sacral vestments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And from the Israelite community, he shall take two he goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. 
Now, uh, in verse 4, I'm just giving a little commentary here because this is a very important that you understand this. Since the tasks to be performed on purification day are for purgation, not for worship, the priest is to remove the vestments worn for the daily service and to don simple linen garments, which, when soiled by the sprinkling of blood, are easily laundered. And then, and from the, okay, I already read that. Verse 6, Aaron is to offer his own bull of sin offering to make uh, expiation for himself and for his household. Aaron shall take the two he goats and let them stand before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall place lots upon the two goats, one marked for the Lord and the other marked for Azazel. Azazel. And verse 8, the commentary about this says, The rabbis clearly divided this name into two words, Azazel, the goat that goes away and from which a traditional scapegoat is derived. It literally means fierce God and as intimidated by the medieval exegete, Abraham, Evan, Ezra, is evidently the name of a demon or deity believed to inhabit the wilderness. Thus, the sins of the people are symbolically cast around beyond civilization to become the property of a being who is the antithesis of God of Israel. Though Azazel accepts the goat bearing Israel's sins as a sacrifice to them, this is no disloyalty to God since he himself commands it. So that's one interpretation. They feel that the goat represents... Um, a uh, demon, or I know Christians identify the goat as being the devil. Uh, another interpretation is that this goat simply represents the Messiah, him bearing our sins. And then um, taking those sins and, and putting all those sins on him. So anyway, verse 9, Aaron shall bring forward the goat designated by a lot for the Lord, which he is to offer as a sin offering. While the goat designated by a lot for Azazel shall be left standing alive before the Lord, to make expiation with it and to send it off into the wilderness for Azazel. And then um, verse 11, Aaron shall then offer his bull of sin offering to make expiation for himself and his household. He shall slaughter his bull of sin offering and he shall take a panful of glowing coals scooped from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground aromatic incense and bring this behind the curtain. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud from the incense screens the cover that is over the ark of the pack that not he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger over the cover on the east side and in front of the cover he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now notice that he's just doing it on one side, the east side. It's interesting. Anyway, verse 15. He shall then slaughter the people's goat a sin offering, bring his blood behind the curtain and do with his blood as he has done with the blood of the bull. He shall sprinkle it over the cover and in front of the cover. Thus he shall purge the shrine of the uncleanness and transgression of the Israelites, whatever their sins, and he shall do the same for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of the uncleanness. Now, Jews understand that this is a day where their sins are cleansed. They understand that. And yet they don't understand that the Messiah was prophesied to cleanse our sins. And that's what this day represents. Verse 17, when he goes into to make expiation in the shrine, nobody else shall be in a tent of meeting until he comes out. When he has made expiation for himself and his household and for the whole congregation of Israel, he shall go out to the altar as before the Lord and purge it. He shall take some of the blood of the blue and, and of the goat and apply it to each of the horns of the altar. And the rest of the blood he shall sprinkle on it with his finger seven times. 
Thus he shall cleanse it of the uncleanness of the Israelites and consecrate it. When he has finished purging the shrine, the tent of meeting, and the altar, the live goat shall be bought for it. Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities and transgressions of the Israelites, whatever their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. And then it shall be set off to the wilderness through a designated man. Thus the goat shall carry on it all the iniquities to an inaccessible region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. Then verse 23, And Aaron shall go into the tent of meeting, take off the linen vestments that he had put on when he entered the shrine, and leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in the holy precinct, and put on his vestments. Then he shall come out and offer his burnt offering, and a burnt offering on the people, making expiation for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall turn to smoke on the altar. He who set Azazel goat free shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. After that he may re-enter the camp. The bull of sin offering and the goat of sin offering, whose blood was bought in to purge the shrine, shall be taken outside the camp, and their hides, flesh, and dung shall be consumed in fire. He who burnt them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water after he may re-enter the camp. And this shall be to you a law for all time. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, which will be tomorrow for those who found a new moon calendar, those who found a Jewish calculated calendar is today, you shall practice self-denial, and you shall do, self-denial means you don't eat, nor, nor do you drink, and you shall do no manner of work, neither the citizen nor the alien who resides among you, for on this day, Atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you of all your sins. You shall be clean before the Lord. It shall be a Shabbat of complete rest for you. And you shall practice self-denial. It is a law for all time. The priest who has been anointed and ordained to serve as priest in place of his father shall make expiation. He shall put on linen vestments, the sacral vestments. He shall purge the innermost shrine. He shall purge the tent of meeting and the altar. And he shall make expiation for the priest and for all the people of the congregation. This shall be to you a law for all time to make atonement for the Israelites for all their sins once a year. And Moses did as the Lord had commanded him. So this is uh, something that uh, is a law, and it should be obeyed every year. And the Jews, uh, they do a good job of acknowledging that, at least uh, every year. I'm trying to look and see if there's another. Uh, let me see something here. Verse 32. Yeah, that word uh, expiation means atonement. And let's see here. Okay, so that is. Um, a description of what happens on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur and Leviticus chapter 23. Let's go there. In verse 26, Leviticus chapter 23, the, the, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Mark the tenth day of this month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall practice self-denial and you shall bring an offering by fire to the Lord. So an offering in all the holy days, there's, there's an offering, something that you must give to God. 
Verse 28, you shall do no work throughout that day, for it is a day of atonement on which expiation or atonement is made on your behalf before the Lord your God. Indeed, any person who does not practice self-denial throughout that day shall be cut off from his kin. And whoever does any work throughout that day, I will cause that person to perish from among his people. Do no work whatever. It is a law for all time throughout the ages in all your settlements. It shall be a Shabbat of complete rest for you. And you shall practice self-denial on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall observe this, your Sabbath. So that this is a very important day to God, and it should be for us as well. And to get a description, a biblical description of what fasting is all about, let's go to Esther. Uh, as a description of what she did. Queen Esther. She's located in the writings. Okay. Let's see. Esther chapter 4, verse 16. Esther 4, verse 16. Go, assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan and fast in my behalf. Do not eat or drink. There we go. Fasting. And then do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. So that's the definition of um, fasting. And, And it says, I and my maidens will observe the same fast. So that's your biblical definition of fasting or self-denial. No food or water. Okay. Now let's turn to Numbers. Chapter 29. Beginning in 7 to 11. On the tenth day of the same month, you shall observe a sacred occasion when you shall practice self-denial, fasting, no food or water. You shall do no work. You shall present to the Lord a burnt offering of pleasing order. One bull of herd, one ram, seven yearling lambs. And this is what, again, God wants us to be generous on these uh, days of worship. Worship has something to do with giving. You shall present to the Lord a burnt offering of pleasing order, one bull of the herd, one ram, seven yearling lambs. See that they are without blemish. The meal offering with them of choice flour with oil mixed in shall be three-tenths of a measure for a bull, two-tenths for the one ram, one-tenth for each of the seven lambs, and there shall be one goat for a sin offering. In addition to the sin offering of expiation or atonement, and the regular burnt offering with his meal offering with his each with his libation. So it's a lot of offerings here. <laughs> and it says in Leviticus the tenth day of the seventh month is called Yom Hapirim, the day of atonement. It is designated as a Shabbat of a complete rest. But a priestly expiation rites associated with it, and we already read that. So and then um Oh, it has an interesting verse here. Let's turn it at Psalm 35, verse 13, about the fasting. Let's see. 
uh, Psalm 35, verse 13. This is an example of the type of state you should be in when you're fasting. It says, Yet when they were ill, my dress was sackcloth. I kept a fast. May what I pray for happen to me. And it states here, The king is betrayed by those he prayed for. So, but when you fast, it should involve a prayer, and you should be, and I'm going to go over that today, you should pray uh, not just for yourself but for other people as well. Uh, Isaiah chapter, uh, let's go to Isaiah chapter 57, starting in verse 14. says the Lord says build up build up a highway clear a road remove all obstacles from the road of my people wondering if this is the right scripture I'm quoting yeah okay um for thus said he who whose high law forever dwells whose name is holy I dwell on high in holiness Yet with the contrite and the lowly in spirit, reviving the spirits of the lowly, reviving the hearts of the contrite. For I will not always contend, I will not be angry forever. Nay, I who make spirits flag and also create the breath of life. For their sinful greed I was angry. I struck them and turned away in my wrath. Though stubborn, they followed the way of their hearts. I note how they fare and will heal them. I will guide them and meet out solace to them. And to the mourners among them, heartening, comforting words, it shall be well, well with the far and the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, which cannot rest. Those waters toss up mire and mud, there is no safety for the wicked. Uh, Isaiah 58, verse 1 in the Jewish Study Bible version. Cry with full throat without restraint. Raise your voice like a ram's horn. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, which is talking about uh, all of Israel, which includes uh, today the United States, uh, the British Commonwealth of Nelson, uh, no, Nelsons, nations, Canada, the countries in Northwestern Europe, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and of course those who believe in King Messiah, Yeshua Messiah, that are scattered around the world. That is uh, Israel, according to secular history, according to biblical evidence. And you can go to uh, your Davidi's website, if you want to prove this for yourself, www.beasinboyritam.org. So the house of Jacob, remember Jacob's name was Jacob originally, before God changed it to Israel. So to the house of Jacob there is sin. And this prophecy and all the prophecies should be declared to our peoples. Verse 2, to be sure they seek me daily. Yes, yes we do, don't we? You know, every Sunday. Praise the Lord, right? Eager to learn my ways. Yes, they are eager to learn the ways of God. Like a nation that does what is right. We're not a nation that does what is right. Look at our political process right now. We can't even figure out a way to manage our debts. And it's so simple if you disobey God, but they don't want to do it. That has not abandoned the laws of God. Yes, we have. We can't even, kids can't even pray in the classrooms today. They've taken the Bible out of the classroom. They did it as early as the early 19th century. And then we wonder why our kids grow up to be monsters. And we wonder why um, 
there's all kinds of sins and all kind of abominations in this country today and around the world. They ask for me for the right way. They are eager for the nearness of God. Verse 3, why when we fast it you did not see? And this is the context of this chapter, fasting, day of atonement. When we starved our bodies, did you pay no heed? Because on your fast day, you see to your business and oppress all your laborers. So obviously they were doing that on the Day of Atonement or and, and, and other days when they fasted, because you don't have to fast just on the Day of Atonement. Matter of fact, Yeshua suggests in Matthew chapter 6 that you um, fast uh, for other days too, not just on the Day of Atonement. Uh, when you, Why? When we fasted, did you not see? When we starved our bodies, did you pay no heed? Because on your fast day, you see to your business and oppress all your laborers. And God talks about this all throughout the Bible. And then you're talking today in the political process. Herman Cain, he says he believes in God. Well, I think he needs to study the Bible a little more, uh, a lot more, uh, to say that uh, if you're not rich, it's, it's your fault. You know, if you don't have a job, it's your fault. Well, that's a judgment call. And if you look at the Bible, it does not say the majority of time that somebody is oppressed, that is their fault. So, Mr. Herman Cain, if a miracle is occurring and you're listening to me, you need to go study your Bible if you really believe in God. Uh, let me just show you a scripture. I get tired when people talk this way, and I don't care what color they are. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense uh, for them, for him to say that. I know he's probably saying that, try to get, get, the, get the white vote, get the rich vote, because he's a Republican. But you don't say things just, just to get something. You know, that's not the intent. So in First Timothy chapter 6, this is a command, Mr. Cain, and to anyone like you who are rich. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. You say you believe in the Bible. Do you believe this? First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them. That's a command. Charge them not to be haughty, as you were when you made that comment, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, Mr. Kane. I haven't heard of any charitable, I'm sure you, I hope you uh, do charitable uh, works, but I haven't heard of them. Not that I need to, but I, uh, I just hope that you do, because that's what God commands a rich person like yourself to do. Uh, it says, uh, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So God, Mr. Cain, who you claim to believe, states that a rich person as yourself should be generous and should give, give, not give handouts. I know what you mean by handouts, uh, giving it to somebody you know is not going to do nothing. No, God doesn't want you doing that, but he wants you to give the people that you know will use that money wisely and has proven to you through their, their actions and, and their attitude that when you give them money, that it's going to help them help themselves. God wants us all to do that to help one another out. That's what life is supposed to be about. It's not about getting up bragging about how much money you have and so forth and, and going around telling people 
uh, I don't know if you're bragging about how much money you have, but going around telling people that it's your fault you're not rich, it's your fault you don't have a job, how can you honestly say that? You're a smart guy. Look at the statistics over the year. Look, look, look at what's going on. Is it is somebody has a good education and they lose their job? And there's many people right now in this country that have lost their jobs and don't and have a great education. And somebody doesn't want to hire them because they're afraid of the economic or the economic problems that are, that are occurring worldwide. Is that their fault? No, it's not their fault at all. And if you study the Bible, if you have a concordance and just put in the word oppression. And if you look at the scriptures, there's it's a lot of scriptures in terms of oppression. And poverty, again, I recommend anyone get this book, How to Eliminate Poverty, The End of Poverty. That's the name of it, The End of Poverty, The End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs. He states in there, this guy is an expert in poverty because he's traveled around the world in the worst areas around the world in terms of poverty. So he's an, he's an authority on it. And he states in, in the book that the cause of poverty is not what many people think because people are lazy. The the real cause of poverty is the lack of resources, which only confirms the Bible and what it says about in, in Proverbs chapter 30. If we turn there, this is a prophecy. There's a lot of prophecy in the entire Bible, not just in the prophetic books. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30. And I'm going to read another Proverbs that uh, I think most people aren't familiar with. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 14. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among mankind. And I know in the King James Version it says there's a generation, which is a pretty accurate translation. Okay, and that generation is this generation, folks. There's no other generation that I can recall, other than perhaps Noah's generation, where the poor are devoured off the face of the earth as it is now. And it's because of filthy rich people doing this. And we turn to uh, Psalms. This is one of the major reasons why the Messiah is coming back. And I don't, I don't, here, even in Judaism, that maybe it is because I, I don't study Judaism that that much. Okay, I refer to it in, in certain uh, situations, but perhaps they are teaching this. But I know among the Christian churches, this isn't taught uh, distinctly, and it's not taught uh, consistently, and it should be. And this psalm should be quoted frequently as well because it explains the whole situation of poverty in itself, really. In, in Psalm chapter ten. Psalm chapter 10. And I'm going to read this in the English uh, Standard Version of the Bible. Psalm chapter 10. You should really mark this and remember this psalm because it really explains the plight of the poor. It says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away, and why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In his pride, or in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight, for all his foes he puffs at them. 
He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. He murders the innocent. He eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. That's the mentality of a lot of rich people in this world, folks. But you know what's going to happen? Verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And then in Psalm chapter 12, it's a continuation of this thing. Psalm chapter 12, verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. That's a good description of humanity today. Verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will rise, says the Lord. That's the reason why I know also the end times are here, because we are in a state right now where almost half the population of the world is in utter poverty. And he states here, in that situation, in verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the greedy groan, I will now rise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace, on the ground purified seven times. Yes, O Lord, will keep them. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. He's talking about the generation of the 21st century. That's what David is talking about here. I think this is, yeah, Psalm of David. I was correct. Yeah, David, uh, as verified by the book of Acts, is a prophet. He's a prophet. And I quote from, I try to quote from him as much as I can. So, back to Isaiah chapter uh, 58. Isaiah chapter 58. All right, where was I now? All right, as far as fasting, all right. Verse uh, Isaiah chapter 58, verse 4. 
because you fast. Well, let me go back to verse 3 again. It says, why when we fasted, you did not see. When we starved our bodies, you, you did you pay no heed. Because on your fast day, you see to your business and press all your labors. When you fast, you don't fast for yourself other than getting the wickedness out of you, but you also fast to think of others. That's what he's talking about here. And in verse 4, because you fast and strife and contention, you strike with a wicked fist. Your fasting today is not such as to make your voice heard on high. Verse 5, it's such to fast I desire, a day for men to starve their bodies. Is it bowing the head like a bulrush and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Do you call that a fast, a day when the Lord is favorable? No, this is the fast I desire. So let's listen up. This is God telling us how we should fast. To unlock the fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. Here we go again with oppression. It's a big problem in this world. It's been a big problem for a long time in this world, but never, never has it been a problem as it has been now today in the 21st century. To let the oppressed go free, to break off every yoke. It is to share your bread, share your bread with the hungry, and to take the wretched poor into your home. The wretched poor, not just the poor, the wretched poor. When you see the naked, to clothe him, and not to ignore your own family or kin, which many families are doing around the world as I speak. Verse 8, then shall your light burst forth like the dawn. So when will your light burst forth? When you start using the Day of Atonement and other fast days as a catalyst to help you to share and give and stop thinking about yourself and what you want all the time. Verse 8, then shall your light burst through like the dawn and your healing spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall mark, and it says your healing quickly. So if anyone has diseases and ailments and all that, a key to it is to fast. And get close to God. And get the wickedness out of you. And then he, what did he say here? He says that he would heal you quickly if you do that. If. Condition, if. It says, the presence of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry, he will say, here I am. If you banish the yoke from your midst, the menacing hand and evil speech. So you've got to purge your mind of wickedness. And that's what I'm trying to allude to today. That's what Yom Kippur is about. His shed blood, as revealed in Hebrews chapter 9, cleanses our conscience of wickedness, of dead works, so that we can do Good works, alive works, that's the antithesis of dead works, is alive works to serve the living God. Many people don't understand why the Messiah sacrificed himself. It's not just to take away the death penalty, folks. It's also to encourage us to obey his laws. And that's the part that Christians just don't get. They just don't get that. And it's sad that they don't, a lot of them. Uh, Isaiah 58, verse 9. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry, he will say, here I am. If you banish the yoke from your midst, the menacing hand, and evil speech, and you shall offer your compassion to the hungry and satisfy the famished creature. Is that an animal? 58, looks like it. Let's see. Um, yeah, okay, and the, uh, I, didn't, I need to look that up here. I may be talking about an animal here. Verse 10, if you're poor, satisfy the afflicted. Okay, but in the uh, English Standard Version, it says afflicted. Uh, 
What does your version say, Sheree? The complete English. Verse 10? Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, so that's probably... I need to look that up because who knows, it may be talking about... But anyway, the point of the matter is you're helping again. You're, you're off yourself and you're helping other living beings, okay? And then shall your light shine in the darkness and your gloom shall be like the noonday. And we're going to get into this light versus darkness uh, dichotomy here in John chapter 3. Hopefully, um, i got 41 minutes left, so i got to speed it up here. Verse 11, the Lord will guide you always. He will shake your thirst in parched places and give strength to your bones. You shall be like a water garden, like a spring whose waters do not fail. Men from your midst shall rebuild ancient ruins, like this temple, for instance, that will be built despite what people think. Read your Bibles. Your Bible says that there will be a temple existing in the end time. If you read in Revelation chapter 11, first couple of verses, it says that people will be praying in the temple of God and there will be an altar. How in the world can it not be a temple? There will be a temple. Yeshua states in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Your Messiah has stated that there is a holy place. In other words, there's a temple. There can't be a holy place. There can't be a holy place if there's not a temple. So the Messiah himself, your Messiah, the Messiah you claim to believe, states that. So this is for anyone who doubts that there's going to be a temple. The Messiah said that it would be. That's why you have to go and study the architecture of the temple. And if you understand what holy place means, you would understand that there's a temple. You can't have a holy you can't have a holy place if there's no temple. Am I making sense? Okay, all right. And the Messiah stated plainly. Let me read it to you again. If you think I I'm it's right up here, Matthew 24, verse 15. We've got to believe all his words, folks. And many people in the Messianic communities, and outside the Messianic communities, whatever community, <laughs> you believe in Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ. You claim to believe. Well, if you believe him, you must obey and believe all his words. And I mean all of them. Not just pick and choose which ones you want to believe for convenience sake. Matthew 24, verse 15. You know, I love this program because this is a program where I can vent. Usually I can't do this. You know, when I'm around people, I have to shut up because I I know I would offend them, not because of wickedness, but because of the truth. Yeshua did that. He offended many of the Pharisees. And he didn't sin, though. He offended them because of the truth. And so God has given me an opportunity to vent every week. And speak the truth for those who want to know it on this program. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. And those who love the truth will love this program. Those who don't will not. Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and Jews believe, a lot of Jews, well, the Jew that I spoke to, rabbi, a rabbi, I'm not going to give his name, but he claimed that he didn't believe that Daniel was a prophet. Well, no wonder they don't understand that uh, if many other rabbis like himself believe that, no wonder the Jews have a hard time understanding that the Messiah is Yeshua because if they believe that Daniel was a prophet, they could easily prove that he is the Messiah. Anyway, 
Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination and desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. <laughs> and I understand why he put that there, because he knew that many people would not understand. And that's why he put that, let the reader understand. He inspired Matthew, who, by the way, was a tax collector. That was his previous uh, uh, profession. But uh, this is just very interesting here, you know? And and, and the commentary here states, uh, Daniel and Averitt tells of the abomination and desolation. Several times in Jewish history it was thought that this prophecy was being fulfilled, most notably during the days of Maccabees when Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the Seleucid king, ordered that an altar to the Greek god Zeus be constructed in the temple. He also decreed that swine and other unclean animals were to be sacrificed there, that the Shabbat was to be profaned, and that circumcision was to be abolished. But Jesus clarifies that the complete fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy will be found in the Roman destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and the image of the Antichrist being set up in the last days. I agree totally, 100%. It happened back in A.D. 70. But what happened in A.D. 70 and in the days of Antioch? There was both at that time a temple, right? Duh. So in the future, duh, there will be, duh, another temple. Okay? Temple, the templeinstitute.org is proof, folks. Go there and study that. You and the whole world will be shocked. Thus says the Lord when that temple is built. When that temple is built, everybody is going to be shocked who doubted Yeshua's words. Again, let's use common sense. This prophecy referred to something that happened in the past. That's why he's told you to go back to Daniel to understand what he was talking about. If you go back to Daniel and look at the last chapter of Daniel, it talks about offerings, the daily sacrifice, which is the lamb offering that's done in the morning and the evening, continuously, under the sacrificial system would be stopped. For that to stop, there has to be, I know it has to be an altar, right. However, when you combine all these other scriptures and understand that that situation also alluded to what happened during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, which a temple was built at that time, and then the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there was a temple at that time, then for the future event, there has to be a temple. That is just thinking logically. Okay? It's not you can't spiritualize something. All oh, this is talking about spiritual stuff. There's there's nowhere in the Bible. And then in, in, in Revelation chapter twelve, let's look at that again. Revelation chapter eleven, rather, I'm sorry. And me and my wife went to a church where this guy I mean, I can understand the reason why he had a drinking problem and got stopped, you know, because obviously it's affecting how he thinks, I guess, and how he preaches. But anyway, Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God. Okay, so if you look at Ezekiel chapter 40, it's t- the same phraseology is used, and it's in the context of a built temple, not a spiritual temple. Okay? It says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar. So there's going to be a temple of God and an altar, and those who worship there. So if this is a spiritual temple, how can you worship yourself? You can't. But do not measure the court outside the temple. This is common English, folks. 
Matter of fact, they have a common English Bible version. What does yours say? No, no, wait a minute, let's go to verse 1. Okay, I don't know if you heard. I don't know if you could. I don't know if you can hear or not, but it's just a it's a clear translation. And they shall trample the holy city for forty two months. That's three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred sixty days. Now this is talking about the same event that's supposed to occur in Luke chapter twenty one. Well, yeah, I'll go to that, and then we got to hurry it up here. Only got like thirty three more minutes here. Luke chapter 21 is talking about the tribulation again. In verse 20, Luke 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. The desolation that he to- spoke about in Matthew 24, verse 15. Then let those who are in Judea or the West Bank flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city, the city of Jerusalem, depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter into it for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled almost exact same phraseology that is used in Revelation chapter 11, where it says uh, that it is given over to the nations, in verse 2, and they will trample the holy city, the entire city, for 42 months. All right? So that's the situation. That's what Yeshua said. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to believe what he said. I'm not going to believe that there's not going to be a holy place when he said that it will be a holy place. And and, and in Mark... uh, I mean, you can go and believe what you want to believe, but I'm going to believe what Yeshua stated. In Mark chapter 13, I mean, I, I get quite a, more few people than not telling me all this about a spiritual temple and there's not going to be a temple um, and so forth, and, and it just does not add up according to what he says in the Bible. In Mark chapter 13, verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, okay, So this abomination of desolation, which obviously is going to be some statue or something standing in in the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place, okay? It's still going to be in the Holy Place. Uh, um, It's obvious what he's talking about. It's going to be a structure where something's going to stand and the Holy Place is involved. That means the temple has to be built. I'm just going by the scriptures. That's why I can say, thus says the Lord, unless somebody can prove to me this is a mistranslation. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go there, Sheree, all right? My wife wants me to go to Second Thessalonians. I will go there. If not, I will not continue to stop hearing it. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. All right, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And you do have deceivers today preaching that mess, and that's, you know, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet. Let no one deceive you in any way, 
For that day will not come. So for those who think that the day of the Lord is here now, it hasn't come yet, folks. All right? For that day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who Judas was called, by the way. So this individual is a great betrayer who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of God of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, and you have these false preachers preaching that, oh, this is talking about his spiritual temple. There's a spiritual uh, uh, anti-Messiah, and he's spiritually in the assembly deceiving people. That's what they preach, but that's not what it's talking about here. He's going to sit in the temple of God, not spiritually, but physically, okay? Proclaiming himself to be God, and on all likelihood that's going to be in the Holy of Holies, he's going to probably sit on the mercy seat, okay, and claim that he is God. That's what your Bible says. All right? So that's the end of that. And for those who want to believe the Scriptures, you know, you can believe the Scriptures, but I'm going to believe the Scriptures and what it says. We've got to stop listening to preachers. Uh, that are in error. Okay, uh, I do listen to various other folks, and I'm always testing. You test me. I don't care, you know. I know I'm quoting out of the Scriptures. And if you find me that I'm not, let me know. But uh, these other folks, you can't get so wrapped up in their personalities that you just totally take everything that they say to be true. You have to, not with a man, you have to do that. Well, you're sure, you can just trust him totally, okay. But with men... No. <laughs> you better check what they say, including me. You know, so, you know, I'm not perfect, but I do the best I can to quote out of the scriptures. If you listen to our program, you know that. So anyway, um, verse 12 of Isaiah 58. So i got to speed it up here. i got 29 minutes left. Men from your midst shall rebuild ancient ruins. You shall restore foundations laid long ago, which is a prophecy of building that temple again and you shall be called repairer of fallen walls restorer of lanes for habitation if you refrain from trampling the shabbat from pursuing your affairs on my holy day if you call the shabbat a delight this is referring also to the day of atonement shabbat but it also could be referring to how to keep the sabbath as well and it is um, showing you how to keep the shabbat as well the weekly sabbath from pursuing your affairs on my holy day, if you call the Shabbat a delight, the Lord's holy day honored. And if you honor it and go not your ways, nor look to your affairs, your you know, your regular affairs, your work and so forth, nor strike bargains or business deals, okay, then you can seek the favor of the Lord. I will set you astride the heights of the earth and let you enjoy the heritage of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that's how we fast. We we fast to get the wickedness out of us. So that we can serve in the living God. And how, how do you serve the living God? By helping people. Because God commands us to do that. Okay. So Isaiah 33. To get a definition of who a righteous person is. Because that's what this day is about. The day of atonement. A catalyst for us to become righteous. Righteous person is someone who obeys God to the best of their ability. Isaiah chapter 33, starting in verse 15. He who walks in righteousness speaks uprightly, spurns profit from fraudulent dealings. And that's something that the people of Wall Street need to read. 
waves away a bribe instead of grasping it, stops his ears against listening to infamy, shuts his eyes against looking at evil. Okay, and that's something that we all need to work on. We need to shut our eyes from looking at evil. Such a one shall dwell in lofty security with inaccessible cliffs for his stronghood, with his food supplied and his drink assured. And does this say you're going to be rich? Does this say you're going to be rich? Huh? I mean, that's what people seem to think when it comes to God. We're all guaranteed to be rich in this world. Now, we will be rich in heaven. We'll have uh, treasure in heaven. Yeshua stated that. But not on this earth. Yeah, riches are in the deal, folks. I'll be lying to you to say otherwise, but uh, not guaranteed to be on this earth. All right, so a wisdom, to allude to that, a wisdom scripture here, Psalm 101, verse 3. Let me read this in the English Standard Bible version. Matter of fact, all the rest of the scriptures will be read in that version. Uh, unless I uh, change it, I may may decide to do that but anyway. Psalm 101. Psalm 101, verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. So, I don't know another version. What does your version say? Uh, uh, right. No, Psalm 101, verse 3. Right. That applies to the television viewing and movie viewing that many of us have done and still do. Um, <laughs> we have to be careful about what we what we see on television and in the movies. It's like the, this one guy, he made perfect sense. Hey, if someone spat in your water, would you drink it? Of course not. Okay, so uh, we need to look at everything like that. And uh, God looks at things, he, li- he likes to look at pure things. And if there's any cursing in a movie, any nudity, any French kissing, whatever, that's wicked. I mean, that that those are things that should be done in private. Um, you have movies where it's just rampant violence all over the place, cars being tossed, bodies being, you know. It, it's just ridiculous. That that kind of stuff is not right. And we need to have the spiritual strength to avoid looking at that stuff. Okay? Uh, there's a scripture. Let's see if I can find it here. Activate my... Yes, yeah, in 2 Corinthians, I think, chapter 10. Verse 5. And this is what the Day of Atonement is about, too. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and bring and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, so it is possible for us to do that to take every every one of our thoughts and to, to make it obey Christ. And and there's a scripture also that states that we must have the mind of Christ. You know, we I think it's in first Corinthians chapter two. Well no, actually not chapter two. Let me see. 
I'll find it here somewhere. Uh, oh, and my trusty concordance here. And type in the phrase, mind of Christ. And we'll find it here. Yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. I was right. I'll come in and pop up here. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. There, there we go. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, for, for, and you know, that's a Jewish mind, by the way. So, because um, Yeshua is a Jew, Jesus is a Jew, so we should be thinking like a Jew. That's what it says there. I don't know if anybody's ever thought about that before, but that's exactly what it's saying there. So, uh, Proverbs 8, verse 13, I'm not going to turn there, but it says that the fear of God is to hate evil. So we need to hate what we look at on television as evil, not embrace it and, and think it's funny, okay? Uh, John, chapter 1, verse 29. John 1, verse 29 says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that and that one verse pictures what this day is all about, about him sacrificing his blood and taking this sin out of the world. That causes death. That's what he did. And then John chapter 3, John chapter 3, I'm going to go a little quickly here because uh, I only have a few minutes left here. John 3 verse 16 was talking about the light, in the darkness in Isaiah 58, well, this sheds light on, um, <laughs> uh, pun intended, uh, this sheds light on what's going on here. John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yes, this scripture's quoted on, on uh, little large pieces of white paper or charts at football games and basketball, right? But they don't read the rest of it, though. Verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur picture here. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And it goes into how you believe here in the next few verses here. Verse 19, And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. The light, in this context, is the Messiah. And people love the darkness, or the darkness would be the devil, then the light, because their works were evil. So if you love the darkness, you love the devil, and you love to do evil works. Now, belief obviously has something to do with works, despite what a lot of Christians believe. Uh, verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. They hate the Messiah and does not come to the Messiah or the light, that not his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out to God. And what is true, folks, other than the fact that it is the living embodiment of the Messiah, uh, the Word of God? Well, the truth in Psalm 119, verse 142 says it's the entire teachings of God, the law. Okay? All right, so in Hebrews, let's go to Hebrews here and let's uh, read this. And I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake here. I'm going to try to read all of this because it's very important. Hebrews 9 verse 1. Then very 
Uh, okay. Hebrews 9, verse 1, in the complete Jewish Bible version, for clarity's sake. Now, the first covenant that have both regulations and worship in a holy place here on the earth. The first agreement, not the law, but the, the first agreement to keep the law. All right? A tent was set up, the outer one, which was called the holy place. In it were the menorah, the table, and the bread of presence. Behind the second uh, was a tent called the holiest place, which had the golden altar for burning incense and the Ark of the Covenant entirely covered with gold. In the ark with a gold jar containing the man, Aaron's rod, that sprouted in the stone tablets of the covenant. The, the tablets that had the Ten Commandments written on by the finger of God. And above it were the Kirvim, representing the Shekinah, or the power of God, the glory of God, casting their, Shekinah rather, casting their shadow on the lid of the ark. But now it is not the time to discuss these things in detail. With things so arranged, the Kohanim, or the priests, go into the outer tent, and this is what we described in Leviticus chapter 16, all the time to discharge their duties, but only the Kohen, Haggadol, enters, or the high priest, enters the inner one, or the Holy of Holies, and he goes in only once a year, and he must always bring blood, which he offers both for himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Verse 8, by this arrangement, the Raish, Hokadish, or the Holy Spirit, show that so long as the first tent or tabernacle had standing, the way into the holy place was still closed. This symbolizes the present age and indicates that the conscience of the person performing the service cannot be brought to the goal, the goal of what? The goal of perfection of eternal life by the gifts and sacrifices he offers. Of course, it doesn't mean you shouldn't still offer them, but anyway, verse 10. For they involve only food and drink and various ceremonial washings, regulations concerning the outer life, imposed until the time for God to reshape the whole structure. Verse 11, But when the Messiah appeared as Cohen, or the high priest, of the good things that are happening already, then through the greater and made more perfect tent, which is not man-made, that is, it is not of this created world. In other words, the temple on the earth was a type of the temple that's in heaven right now. There's a temple in heaven where God dwells. That's his home. And that's what the temple on the earth represents. Verse 12, he entered the holiest place once and for all. That, that is God's room. That is his throne room, the holiest place. That's what it represents. And he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, the Messiah did, thus setting people free forever. We're free not to, to sin, but we're free forever if we obey God from the death penalty. That's what that's talking about. Verse 13, for is sprinkling ceremonial unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer restores their outward purity. So that's all the, the, the sacrifices did was cleanse us physically. It didn't cleanse our minds to stop us from sinning. And that's what most people don't understand. Verse 14, then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God as a sacrifice without blemish, will purify our conscience from works that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. God wants us to stop doing works that lead to death. He commands us to work six days a week. That's a part of the Shabbat commandment, or the Sabbath commandment. One of the major reasons why the Messiah had to die is because not only did was the death penalty there to, to destroy us, but also, when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost the ability, the, in, the ability that God has given us naturally to serve and care about one another. That was destroyed. 
so when he died, not only did he eliminate the death penalty, but through the Holy Spirit, writing those laws in our hearts and minds, the Holy Spirit is our helper, is the comfort, is the catalyst to help us start to obey the law, to become righteous, which is a gift as well. Where did the righteousness come from? The ability to, to be righteous from the Messiah through his shed blood. So we'll purify our conscience from works that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. Prior to that, none of us could serve, really truly serve the living God without his spirit. The prophets had the spirit. That's how they were able to serve the living God. Verse, 19, uh, verse 15, it is because of this death that he is the mediator of a new covenant or will, because a death has occurred which sets people free from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. For where there is a will, there must necessarily be produced evidence of his maker's death. Since a will goes into effect only upon death, it never has forced why his maker is still alive. That is why the first covenant was too inaugurated with blood. After Moshe had proclaimed every command of the Torah to all the people, he took the blood of the calves with some water and used scarlet wool and hyssop to sprinkle both the scroll itself and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has ordained for you. Likewise, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the things used in his ceremonies. In fact, according to the Torah, almost everything is purified with blood. Indeed, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, which uh, Jews, a lot of Jews don't believe that. But uh, the truth is the truth, folks. And uh, uh, you have to believe what God says. That's what you must do. So anyway. Verse 23. Now, this is how the copies of the heavenly things had to be purified. But, the, see, the there's two areas of the holy place. You have the regular holy place where the priests prepare to do their work, and then you have behind the veil the holy of holies. Okay? The holy place represents the the old agreement, the old way to keep the commandments, which was without the Holy Spirit. The holy of holies pictures keeping the commandments by the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, writing those commandments on or in our minds so that we can keep it. So verse 23. Now this is how the copies of the heavenly things had to be purified, but the heavenly things themselves require better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. For the Messiah has entered a holiest place, which is not man-made and merely a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, in order to appear now on our behalf in the, in the very presence of God. Further, he did not enter heaven to offer himself over and over and over again, like the Kohen, Haggadah, or the high priest who enters the holiest place year after year with blood that is not his own, for then he would have had to suffer death many times from the founding of the universe on. But as it is, he has appeared once at the end of the ages in order to do away with sin through the sacrifices of himself. The sin of, that caused us to... to to all have to be destroyed, not to, not to be able to live eternally. That's what it's talking about. Verse 27, just as human beings have to die once, but after this comes judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to deliver those who are eagerly waiting for him. In, in chapter 12, verse 1, so then, chapter 12, verse 1, so then, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us too, Put aside every impediment, that is, the sin which easily hampers our forward movement, and keep running with endurance in the contest set before us. When you run, you're working, you're doing something, right? You have to do something, folks. 
Don't believe these false ministers that are telling you that you don't have to do anything because Christ sacrificed for you. That is not true. That is one of the greatest lies ever in the history of religion. Verse 2, looking away to the initiator and completer of that trusting, Yeshua, who in exchange for obtaining the joy set before him endured execution on the stake as a criminal, scorning the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, think about him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you won't grow tired or become despondent. Verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in the contest against sin. And many of us can say, yes, we have not. Verse 5, also you have forgotten the counsel which speaks to you as sons. My son, don't despise the discipline of Adonai or the Lord, or become despondent when he corrects you. Verse 6, for Adonai disciplines those he loves and whips everyone he accepts as a son. Verse 7, regard your endurance as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son does what son goes undisciplined by his father? Verse 8, all legitimate sons undergo discipline, all legitimate sons. <laughs> so if you don't, you are a mazer or, and not a son, in other words, uh, a bastard. Verse 9, furthermore, we have physical fathers who discipline us and we respect them. How much more should we submit to our spiritual father and live? Verse 10, for they discipline us only for a short time and only as best they could. But he disciplines us in a way that provides genuine benefit to us and enables us to share in his holiness. Verse 11, now all discipline while it is happening does indeed seem painful, not enjoyable, but for those who have been trained by it, it later produces its peaceful fruit, which is righteousness. Verse 12, so strengthen, and what is righteousness? Psalm 119, verse 172 is the commandments. Verse 12, so strengthening. Your drooping arms instead of your tottering knees and make a level path for your feet so that what has been injured will not get wrenched out of joint, but rather will be healed. Keep pursuing shalom, or peace, with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses out on God's grace, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and thus contaminates many, and that no one is sexually immoral or godless like uh, Esau, who in exchange for a single meal... That's um, Esau, who in exchange for a single meal gave up his rights as the firstborn. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to obtain his father's blessing, he was rejected indeed, even though he sought it with tears. His change of heart was of no avail. In other words, his repentance wasn't sincere. His changing, his changing of mind was not sincere. Verse 18, for you have not come to a tangible mountain, to an ignited fire, to darkness, to murk, to a whirlwind, to the sound of a shofar. And to a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be given to them. That's talking about the old agreement to keep the commandments, that setting. Verse 20, for they couldn't hear what was being commanded them. If even an animal touches the mountain, it is to be stoned to death. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am quaking with dread. On the contrary, you have come to Mount Zion, that is the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, to myriads of angels and festive assembly to a community of the firstborn whose names have been recorded in heaven, to a judge who is God of everyone, to spirits of righteous people who have been brought to the gold. That's all that is in heaven right now. To the mediator of a new covenant, Yeshua, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better things that, than that of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not reject the one speaking. For if those did not escape who rejected him when he gave divine warning on earth, think, how much less we will escape if we turn away from him when he warns from heaven. So that's a warning for us to get our act together. That's what the Day of Atonement represents, for us to start 
doing righteous works. Of course, we don't earn salvation of ourselves, but we earn salvation through the Messiah's help, through his helping us become righteous. That's how we earn salvation. He earns it for us, but we have to commit to him and subject our minds to doing the things that he did. And if we do, then we would earn salvation through him, not through our own efforts, okay? Uh, Verse 26, even then his voice shook the earth, but now he has made the promise. One more time I will shake not only the earth, but heaven too. And that's interesting that he's going to shake heaven. Verse 27, and this phrase, one more time, makes clear that the things shaken are removed since they are created things, so the things not shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have received an unshakable kingdom, let us have grace, which is, you know, favor, through which we may offer service that will please God with reverence and fear. Verse 29. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. In Hebrews 13, starting in verse 15, it states this. Through him, therefore, let us offer God a sacrifice of praise continually, for this is the natural product of lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 16, but don't forget doing good and sharing with others, for which, for with such sacrifice God is well pleased. All right? And this, if you read above that, is, is talking about sacrifices again. The sacrifices and offering does not just picture the Messiah sacrificing his life so that mankind can have an opportunity to live forever. It also represents us learning how to give and share and keep keeping all the teachings of God. That's what it represents, folks. That's what it really, truly pictures. So, you know, that that is something that you should understand. I think in Hebrews chapter 12, I wanted to... Right. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, I'm going to read something here, another version. But hopefully, I hope you understand. I tried to break this down as simple as I can pictures what the Day of Atonement is all about. Of course, the Day of Atonement also pictures the, the day that Yeshua will land on the Mount of Olives and, and begin to rule the world. It uh, pictures all of that, folks, and we, we need to, um, to understand that, and we need to respect this day for what it is. And you know, we, should, we need to use this day to to inspire us to or, you know, for those who are keeping it today and then those who are keeping it tomorrow to inspire you to, to give and to share what you have with everyone else and to learn how to give to God. And how do you give to God? You give to God by serving people. Serving people. You serve God and you give to God by doing that. Okay, well, this other version is the same thing basically here. So, All right, so that's it for this week. Um, I pretty much have covered what uh, Yom Kippur represents. It represents the uh, Messiah sacrificing himself for all of mankind and eliminating the death penalty through his shed blood. Uh, number two, that blood cleanses our conscience from dead works so we can start serving the living God. And we do that by sharing and caring. Uh, that's what the sacrifices and offerings did also symbolize not just the shedding of the Messiah's blood just to remove the death penalty from us, but also to help us 
keep the commandments because without his help, without the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, we cannot keep the commandments. All right, so may God bless and keep you. And God willing, I'll, I'll be back with you next week with another program. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. <laughs>